0: Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. I started working at churches when I was a 19 year old sophomore in college. I was a youth pastor at this little church in a little town outside of Abilene, Texas. And shortly after taking the job, the, the senior pastor asked me to fill in for him preaching one Wednesday night. Now I was used to, to preaching to a handful of youth in the youth group, and this was going to be a room full of adults. And so I was understandably nervous, but I was also really excited. The pastor told me I should aim for about 30 minutes of preaching time, but that if I had more to say, I could go up to 45 minutes. Over the next few weeks, I I prepared and I practiced like crazy. Now, Amy, my my now wife, she and I had been dating for about two years at that time. And so she helped me through the whole process and then promised that she would be there with me to support me during that whole night. Honestly, during the prep time, I was worried I was going to end up talking for an hour that night because there was so much great stuff I was reading and preparing, and when that night came, I was so excited. I walked up to the stage in front of 20 or so adults, and I started into that sermon. But it was so weird. Like right as soon as I started, I got super nervous, so nervous that I basically like black out. Like everything else is a blur. I'm up there talking, but I don't remember any of it. If you've ever seen the movie Old School, it's basically like when Will Ferrell debates James Carville and he like blacks out the whole time. It was like that. It was a blur. All I remember is walking up there, talking for a while, and then the next thing I remember, I'm walking down off the stage back to my seat. I sit down in the pew next to Amy. The whole place is dead Quiet. I'm looking around trying to figure out what's going on. I'm getting sideways glances from everybody there. I look over to Amy and her eyes are like this big. And I whisper, What happened? What happened? She said, Zach, you talked for eight minutes and then you prayed and you came and you sat down next to me. It was so fast. And I look over just as she finishes and the senior pastor is walking up to the front of the stage and he looks kind of confused and he's giving me a weird look and he motions for the pianist to come up and he says, I guess we should just sing some more songs or something. Zach, thanks for for doing that tonight. And it was like such an embarrassing moment. That was my very first sermon. Not great, but not worst case scenario either. You see, worst case scenario is actually what happened to Jesus after his first sermon. Little spoiler alert for our message today, the folks in his hometown of Nazareth literally try to kill Jesus after his first time preaching. So I'll take eight minutes of embarrassment over an attempted execution any day of the week. This morning, we're going to look at that infamous sermon. We're going to talk about why he said it, what it meant, and why everybody got so upset when he preached it. We're beginning this new series in our year in the life of Jesus called Going Public. We're going to spend the next four weeks in this series looking at how Jesus transitioned from leading a very private life to a very public ministry. Our story begins in chapter four of Luke's account of Jesus' life, starting in verse 14. So if you've got your Bibles, your phones, anything like that, you can follow along with us. The verses will also be on the screen. You can see them there. Luke 4, starting in verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. So after his temptation in the wilderness, which we covered last week um, on Sunday, Jesus returns to the region of Galilee, and he starts his three years of public ministry, Galilee is actually where Jesus spends the majority of his ministry time, and it's home to his hometown of Nazareth. Luke and the other gospel writers, they mention that Jesus teaches in synagogues all around Galilee during this time, but this passage is actually the only example we have of the sermon that he was preaching. Just in case you're wondering what a synagogue is, if you're not really familiar with that, um, it's basically uh, like the Christian equivalent of a local church for Jewish folks, So the main temple was in Jerusalem, and people traveled to it during this time many times a year for festivals and celebrations, but each Sabbath day, they would gather in their local synagogue, teaching from the Jewish scriptures, they would sing the Psalms, and they would enjoy time together. Now, hopefully all of that sounds fairly familiar, because it's basically what churches and synagogues still do every week today. This is the setting of our story this morning. Jesus is in his hometown synagogue, a place he probably went almost every week of his life growing up, but now he's an adult. Things have changed a little bit. As Luke said, news about Jesus has spread throughout the whole countryside, and he has become known for his great teaching ability. So on that Sabbath day, Jesus isn't Mary and Joseph's little boy running around the synagogue anymore. He's a celebrity of sorts. Return to his hometown synagogue handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, it's important to note, he's handed the entire scroll of Isaiah, but Jesus chooses to read this passage very specifically. He also chooses not to include a line at the end of this passage, which we'll come back to in a second. So why choose these verses from Isaiah? I think there are two very obvious reasons. The first is to announce who he is. You see, Jesus is making what is called a messianic claim here. He is telling the people that he is actually the long-anticipated savior of the world talked about throughout the whole Old Testament. This passage from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah is one of those messianic predictions. So by reading it and then saying, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, Jesus is explicitly claiming to be the Messiah the savior of the world. He's the one they've been waiting for. That's the first reason Jesus chose this passage, to announce who he is. The second reason is to announce what he's about, not just announce who he is, but announce what he is all about. Jesus says that he's all about bringing good news to the poor, giving freedom to the prisoners and freedom to the oppressed, restoring sight for the blind and proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. This is his mission statement so to speak. It's why he's come. It's what he's about. Now, far too many people have sought to kind of co-opt Jesus's mission statement here for their own purposes or, or slant it to fit their own narratives. Now, people like this, they generally fall into one of two categories. They either say this mission statement from Jesus is all spiritual, or they say that it's all social. They either say it's all spiritual, like, oh, it's not for actually blind people. It's just spiritually blind. It's not for actual poor people. It's just spiritually poor, and we're all poor in spirit. Or we move it to the other side, and we say it's all social. So there's no spiritual ramifications, implications of this. But as we've said throughout this year in the life of Jesus, the kingdom of God is always both. Both spiritual and social. It's both personal and communal. It's concerned with both salvation and justice. Anyone who tells you the kingdom of God is only about one or the other is flat wrong. It is always, always both. It's not 50% of both. It's not halfway meeting in the middle of both. It's 100% both. Like we've been saying since this year in the life of Jesus began, Who Jesus is and what he's about must be the foundation of our faith as Christians. As many of us continue to walk through the process of deconstruction and reconstruction, the person and work of Jesus must be the lens through which we examine every part of our faith. This is so vitally important. And this message from Jesus is even more vitally important, because this message is one of those cornerstone passages for our spiritual foundation. Because here, he concisely and explicitly tells us who he is and what he's about. He's the savior of the world, God in the flesh, and he's all about bringing good news to the poor, giving freedom to the oppressed, freedom to the prisoners, restoring sight to the blind, and proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. But what are all of those things, really? What are they in the first century context of Jesus' message, and how do they translate to our context today? Well, we're just going to look at them one by one. So the first one is good news to the poor. It's probably not that big of a surprise to you, but being poor in the first century was a whole lot like being poor in the 21st century. Being poor meant you lacked something. This had obvious economic implications. You didn't have enough money, you lacked the resources to be able to interact with life. But it's also somewhat of a catch-all term for anyone considered to be lacking anything at all. New Testament scholar Joel Green says it like this, I think it's so well put. In that culture, One's status in the community was not so much a function of economic realities, but depended on a number of elements, including education, gender, family heritage, religious purity, vocation, economics, and so on. It is thus evident that Jesus' mission is directed to the poor, defined not merely in subjective, spiritual, or personal economic terms, but in the holistic sense of those who are for any number of socio-religious reasons relegated to positions outside the boundaries of God's people. These are folks on the margins for any number of reasons. By directing his good news to these people, Jesus indicates his refusal to recognize those socially determined boundaries, asserting instead that even outsiders are objects of divine grace. Others may regard such people as beyond the pale of salvation, not worth redemption, but God has opened a way for them to belong to God's family. Beautiful. See, the kingdom of God is good news to the poor because it not only welcomes them into God's family, it helps meet whatever needs they are lacking. This is what Jesus did but it's also what the church and Christians have done for 2,000 years. We meet needs, spiritual needs, yes, but also physical needs, economic needs, emotional needs, and any other needs that we can meet. That's what it means that this is good news to the poor. Next, Jesus said he was about recovery of sight to the blind. Again, this has dual meaning. We see throughout the ministry of Jesus that he literally heals the blind so that they can see, but he also causes the metaphorical scales to fall from fully functioning eyes so that we can truly see who Jesus is and what he is about. I think a beautiful example of this is John Newton. You may know who he is. He went from being a slave trader, captain of a slave ship in the Atlantic slave trade to an abolitionist. In 1772, he wrote the famous song Amazing Grace in which he so beautifully describes how this happens. He says, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Listen, I was blind, but now I see. See, John Newton was blind to the horrors of the Atlantic slave trade until Jesus helped him recover his sight. After that, he spent the rest of his life fighting for abolition. This is what it means that Jesus brings recovery of sight to the blind. It's both physical and beautifully metaphorical, which leads perfectly into the next part of Jesus's mission, freedom for the prisoners and the oppressed. John Newton experienced the amazing duality of this freedom from Jesus. He was set free from his sins when he placed his faith in Jesus, but that wasn't the fullness of the good news. He was set free also from his figurative imprisonment to sin. And Jesus used him then to set others free from their literal imprisonment to slavery and the oppression that went along with it. This was the mission of Jesus when he said this back in Nazareth. And it's still his mission today. We are called to help people experience freedom from oppression caused by sin and freedom from the impression caused by people and systems in our world. I just wanna pause and emphasize again how ridiculous it is that anyone would want to cut the gospel in half by reducing it to being only spiritual or only social. Jesus said that he came so that humanity could experience life and life to the full. Don't settle for half the good news. Okay, so that covers giving good news to the poor, restoring sight for the blind, bringing freedom to the oppressed and the prisoners. So we are just left with proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. This is kind of a hard one to understand. And honestly, it's where the English language lets us down a little bit. Because when we think of favor, we just think of like a little bit of help, right? A friend doing us a favor, like taking us to the airport or or lending us $10. It's nice, but it's kind of small. But the year of the Lord's favor is anything but small. This phrase harkens back to an Old Testament practice called the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee occurred every 50 years. And during this time, all the slaves would be freed, all debts would be canceled, and all land would be returned, and God would richly bless everyone. It was a return back really to God's original intent for the whole world. A place where everyone is completely equal, everyone rests in God's love, and there is abundant goodness in all things and between all things. Jesus is declaring that he has come to bring the year of the Lord's favor to fruition. Not just once every 50 years, y'all, but every single day from that moment forward. This is God's kingdom come here and now on earth as it is in heaven. It's a pretty good sermon from Jesus, right? That's his first one. He knocks it out of the park. Well, actually, his audience thought so too at first. Verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. The people are very impressed by Jesus at this point. They had heard of his great teaching ability and even though they went in with pretty high expectations, Jesus has managed to exceed them all. Isn't that Joseph's son? That that shouldn't be read in a a negative or dismissive way. The people of his hometown are amazed that Jesus, they knew as a child has now grown up to be this incredible teacher. Everything's great at this point. Jesus could have stopped right here and let everyone marvel. He could have headed out to lunch after the service ended, probably gotten his plate paid for, but he doesn't do that. He keeps going. He keeps teaching. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy at the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. Wow. This story goes from everyone enjoying a nice sermon Impressed by Jesus to an attempted lynching in a matter of seconds. This is a really confusing text for us if we don't understand the, all the Old Testament references in it. Right? We know just from the context that people go from being amazed by Jesus to trying to kill him after he mentions Elijah, Elisha, Naaman, and a widow. But what is it about these people? What is it about these stories that makes everyone so angry? Let's consider Jesus' quotation of Isaiah again. He says he has come to bring good news to the poor, to give freedom to the prisoners and the oppressed, to restore sight for the blind, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Nobody was mad after that. They were all excited after that. They weren't even mad when Jesus made his messianic claim and said, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. So what made them so mad? What moved them from admiration to execution? It's those four names I just mentioned. So let me tell you a little bit about these two stories. The story of Naaman the Syrian and the story of the widow of Zarephath. Naaman was the commander of the Syrian army. He was rich, he was powerful, and he was violent. Not only was he not Jewish, he actually led the military of a rival nation. In fact, he only goes to a, a Elisha for healing because he had a slave girl who'd been captured from Israel who told him there was a Hebrew prophet who could heal him of his leprosy. And then lastly, his leprosy made him even more of an outsider as it was seen as punishment from God. He was an unclean enemy of the Israelites. That's Naaman. Naaman. The widow in Zarephath was also not Jewish, but essentially she was the opposite of Naaman in almost every other way. She had no power or privilege in this culture. She was a woman, which meant she was basically subhuman when compared to men. But she wasn't just a woman. She was a widowed woman, an even lower distinction. And she was so poor that she didn't have enough food to feed three people one single meal. She was a nobody with nothing to offer. She was a pagan. She was outside the nation of Israel, and she was not their responsibility to help. They wanted nothing to do with people like the widow at Zarephath. Naaman represents the height of privilege. While the widow from Zarephath was the depth of poverty, she was a poor woman, and he was a powerful man. They were different in virtually every way except for one thing, one thing. They were seen as outsiders by members of the family of God. But God didn't see them that way. He saw them as his kids, people he dearly loved. And he loved them so much that he sent two different prophets to welcome them into his family. When Jesus lays out his mission, he lets the people know that he has come to help more than just the folks sitting in the synagogue that day. He came for Naaman the Syrian. He came for the widow in Zarephath. He came for every single other human who has ever lived. Jesus preaches a message here of full inclusion for all people, and they tried to kill him for it. Remember earlier? I said Jesus purposely leaves out that last line from Isaiah's passage he read. Here's what the whole thing says, Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, all there. And one more line, and the day of vengeance for our God. That's the line that Jesus chooses not to read. See, the day of vengeance here, it was considered by the Israelites to be when this Messiah would come back and take back everything that was rightfully theirs. For those listening to Jesus in the first century, it meant he would raise up an army, overthrow Rome, and they would become, once again, the most powerful and pure nation in the world. But see, Jesus not only takes that part out, he replaces it with two stories of outsiders being welcomed in to God's family. Now can you see why they tried to kill him? This message was heresy and blasphemy to the ears of the crowd that day. They wanted a Messiah who would kill their enemies, but Jesus was a Messiah who loved his enemies. They wanted a savior who would purify them from outsiders, but Jesus was a savior who welcomed outsiders. Baylor professor Mikhail Parsons says this when talking about this passage. The radical inclusiveness of Jesus' ministry shocks his audience. They had understood themselves to be the primary beneficiaries of Jesus' message. They could all relate to being poor and captive and blind or oppressed. They were ready for deliverance, but they were not prepared to share it. They were ready for deliverance, but they were not prepared to share it. But what the people in the synagogue that day did not understand, and unfortunately, what far too many Christians today are unable to comprehend, is that radical inclusion of all people is essential to Jesus's mission. It's central to who he is and what he is about. Because you see, this is just the beginning. This is just the mission statement Throughout his ministry we see Jesus crossing cultural lines of age, race, gender, class, lifestyle, vocation, and more. Every wall erected to divide humanity and keep people out of God's family is bulldozed down by Jesus. The good Samaritan, the woman caught in adultery, sexual minorities like the Ethiopian eunuch, tax collectors, prostitutes, drunks, the powerful and the oppressed, all welcomed into the family of God. Saying God's grace is only for certain people perverts the gospel in such a severe way that it becomes totally unrecognizable from the message Jesus preaches and practices throughout his life. The love of God is radically inclusive He shows no partiality when it comes to humanity. There are no restrictions on his grace, no parameters on his mercy, and no qualifications for his love. Everyone is accepted, everyone is welcomed in, and everyone has a place in the family of God if they desire it. I love how this story ends too. We left off with a little bit of a cliffhanger, right? Pun intended, in verse 29. The crowd has cornered Jesus on top of a hill and they're trying to throw him off of a cliff. Here's verse 30, which ends the story. But Jesus walked right through the crowd and went on his way. They tried to stop the radically inclusive mission of Jesus that day, but he walked right through them and he continued on his way. He kept moving in his mission. This is a little preview too of the resurrection. You see, no matter how many times we try to kill Jesus, he doesn't stay dead. No matter how hard we fight against his mission, his kingdom prevails, and no matter how many people we try to exclude, Jesus welcomes everyone in. This is simply who he is and what he is about, both then and now. Jesus' mission hasn't changed. He is still drawing all people to himself, welcoming everyone into his family. There's a superb author by the name of Danielle Mayfield who says it like this when talking about this Luke 4 passage from Jesus. She says, the more I read this passage, the more I studied who Jesus was drawn to and who was drawn to him, the more it became clear. This wasn't just Jesus announcing what he had come to do. This was Jesus providing a roadmap for where we would always find him at work in the world. Jesus is still about this mission today. The only difference between now and then is that now he's doing it through the church. I hope the implications of this are completely clear, but just in case they aren't, let me put it bluntly. If the church of Jesus is not bringing good news to the poor, giving freedom to prisoners and the oppressed, restoring sight for the blind and proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor all within while with the power of the Holy Spirit. It is not on mission with Jesus. If we are not spending our time meeting both spiritual and social needs, we are not working where Jesus is working. And if we are not welcoming everyone, we are not fulfilling the mission God. Jesus wants to bring good news to all people. The gospel is radically inclusive. So let me end by making this really personal for us for a second. If Jesus was preaching this message in our church today, who would he talk about, including, that would make you angry? Maybe it's someone like the widow in Zarephath you don't feel like they have anything to offer. They walk around with their hands out. All they do is take from anyone who will give to them without even a thank you. Or maybe it's someone like Naaman the Syrian. Someone so powerful and even oppressive that you're totally convinced they are beyond redemption. Or maybe it's just someone whose lifestyle or worldview repulses you. And you think there's no way we can both be in this family of God. Honestly, it doesn't really matter because whoever it is, God has a place for them too because God loves the people we hate. He reaches out to the people we reject. He lifts up the people we push down. Instead of fighting about who to let in, let us break down every barrier that keeps people out. Let's go on mission with Jesus and be a part of bringing salvation, freedom, and fullness of life to every single person we meet. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for your mission. What a privilege it is to be able to be a small part of it even today. I pray, God, that you would use this life of Jesus and, and passages like this one to really center us on who you are and what you're all about. So that when uh, the world and life so, so, um, so distracts us, so pulls at our attention from every place, God, that we would be able to stay focused on who you are, what you are about, so that we can be a part of fulfilling this radically inclusive mission you have here on earth we can be a part of sharing the full gospel that is both spiritual and social with every single person we encounter. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.